Hi, I'm Anna Smith and welcome to Girls on Film. Today I'm joined by the great Carey Mulligan to talk about the film Maestro. Fasten your seatbelts. It's going to be a bumpy night. I'm going to get that gun of mine and I'm going to change you from a rooster to a hen with one shot. Some people call me a freak. I hate that word. I don't believe in it. Better yet, I don't believe in labels. You know, I think you're the only girl in the world that can stand on a stage with a spotlight in her eye and still see a diamond inside a man's pocket. Because I'm up at five every morning working my ass off. Does someone want to just tell me to my face you're never going to give me the scores I deserve? Hello again, I'm Anna Smith and today we're talking with Carey Mulligan about the film Maestro, which is on Netflix now. Directed by Bradley Cooper, Maestro chronicles the lifelong relationship between composer Leonard Bernstein and Felicia Montalegre Cohen Bernstein. It's been nominated for seven Oscars and seven BAFTAs, including Best Actress in both cases for Carey. This episode is a special one. It was recorded with an audience of Girls on Film listeners on the very day that Carey was nominated for that Oscar. Carey joined us after a special screening in London for a fascinating conversation. That was Maestro. Once again, I'm Anna Smith, and I'm absolutely delighted to welcome to the stage Kerry Mulligan, lead actress from Maestro. Welcome, Kerry. Do join us. Hello, everyone. Massive congratulations on this phenomenal film, this phenomenal performance, and all the nominations. Thank you. How are you feeling today? Exciting day. Yeah, good. Um, it's nuts. We, we're so excited. Bradley and I have been texting each other about where we're going to stay in LA and get ready. And <laughs> it's our whole gang, our sound team and makeup, obviously. We're all very excited. Well, welcome back to Girls on Film as well, because this is being recorded for our podcast. And you came on episode three of Girls on Film just after we'd launched to try and shine a light on women in film. So thank you for supporting our journey because this is episode 167. Oh, wow. So we've come a long way. That's amazing. <laughs> so, um, it's great to have you back. And um, let's talk a bit about Maestro and the role of Felicia. What appealed to you about this role in particular? Gosh, lots. I mean, I didn't, I didn't know anything about her. I didn't know really anything about him when I started. When Bradley asked me to do it, it was 2018. So he was starting to work on a story that he wanted to tell about Leonard Bernstein. It wasn't necessarily a straightforward biopic, um, but he loved conducting or loved the idea of conducting and always had since he was little. So he went to Steven Spielberg and asked if he could direct this film. And, and really just by the initial research he did, he decided he wanted it to be about the marriage these yeah. two people. So I was, I think before I really knew anything about her, I just wanted to work with Bradley and I wanted to, I kind of just wanted to work with Bradley, really. I just thought he was such a good actor. And, and then he showed me A Star Is Born and A Star Is Born was really good. And yeah. it was so, you know, it's a little bit like he asked me to make a film and then he said, well, you should watch Star Is Born first. And I sat there thinking like, God, I hope it's good. Um, <laughs> and it was so good. And then I just thought, well, whatever he does, it's going to be amazing. So I, I just said yes then, and then I really learned about her as he was writing it. Tell me about what you learned about her and how you prepared. Your voice alone is fantastic in this. I don't know if, you, if anyone's ever seen, obviously, her on film, but you really have captured her beautifully. Thank you. Um, she's, yeah, she's she has the coolest voice. I actually was, was quite nervous of it for a while because... It's so specific and it's a little bit odd because it's a real mix of different things. You know, she she was born in Costa Rica, but she spent the majority of her childhood 
in Santiago, Chile, but her father was American, so she also spent a lot of time in America and she went to an you know, international school. So it was all these different things. And then she wanted to be an actress in New York and so tried to sound like Catherine Hepburn. Really. Right. That, yeah. Um, so she she was a real blend. But they had these tapes. So in in 67, this writer, journalist called John Groom, went and spent a summer with the Bernstein family. And he wrote a book called The Private World of Leonard Bernstein. And he interviewed Lenny and he interviewed Felicia and Shirley and I think Lenny's secretary. And, and you can hear the kids on the recordings as well. And he wrote a book, but we have those recordings. Wow. So those were really the template for everything. Because she is on film. I mean, the, that Edward L. Murrow interview is online um, and a couple of her performances. But she's all she's doing like weird. She does like a very weird Cockney accent in one of them. And <laughs> there's a bunch of, you know, so it's, it's not really a way of sort of this is exactly as she is, the way that she's talking to John because he's a friend. Yes. And she's talking about her life and she's very grounded in herself. So that's. That felt like the best sort of match for, you know, her, her voice. I love your smell. You do? I do. It's my father. Isn't that odd? I used to just love wrapping myself up in his trench coat. Mm. And he would walk on the door at night from work. That smell would intoxicate me. I always associated with feeling safe. There are so many things I love about this film, but one of them is the dialogue, and you're kind of referencing that there. That naturalistic way that everyone talks and they sort of overlap each other, and it felt very conversational. Can you talk to me a bit about that, specifically in the scenes with Bradley? Because I just loved every moment of your kind of the courtship and and even the challenging moments. It all felt very natural. I think it was getting our dialect really comfortable so that we could do all the overlapping and stuff. Because some of that, I mean, most of that is written in that it's that they kind of. And Bradley talked about it a lot like music, like they made music together. Even when they're fighting, there's a sort of rhythm to the way that they speak that is very just indicative of people who spent their whole lives together. So Tim Monick was our dialect coach who worked with Bradley on his voice and, and with me. And we worked separately for a long time. And then when we were in New York in the three months before we started shooting, we started doing our sessions together. And then we would read scenes, but then also improvise just in those in our voices. So we got to the point where it was very kind of natural. So there are bits in the film that are just made up on the day and there are bits that are written but feel hopefully the same as the bits that are improvised. You want to be sleepless and depressed and sick. You want to be all of those things so you can avoid fulfilling your obligations what obligation? to what you've been given, to the oh, gift please. you've been given. Please. My God. The gift comes with burdens. Oh, if you had any the idea. burden of failing. I'm sorry to just admit love. it, but that's the truth. But above all, you love people. And I do love people. And from that wellspring of love, the complications arise in your life. That's exactly wake right. Wake up. Wake up. Take off your glasses. Hate L in your heart. Hate in your heart and anger. For so many things, it's hard to count. That's what drives you. Deep, deep anger drives you. You aren't up on that podium allowing us all to experience the music the way it was intended. You are throwing it in our faces. How dare you? How much we will never How be able to ever understand. And by us witnessing you do it so effortlessly, oh, you hope that we will know, really know, deep in our core, how less than we all well, are. That's you. your issue. That and you it's feel your hubris. Join the crowd. Join the line of people that feel less than Harry corrals for you under the guise they have something intellectual to offer you, or you are, dare I say, teaching them. Well, at least 
My heart is open. The audacity to say that! Have you forgotten about the four years where you, you can decide if you want to marry me? That's what I think. The idea, the idea. Of you. It's like the that idea. Richard Chamberlain movie that we saw last week, and he said, How could I ever compete with the man that you think I am? Uh, thank God I met Dick so I could fucking survive oh, your indecision. Heart. Richard Hart, yes. who fucking yes. died. who loved me. Who died. Who loved me. Oh, yeah, and he's a corpse now, and I was the one who was a fool waiting outside the fucking hospital for you like an idiot in my truth. Your truth is a fucking lie. It sucks up all the energy in every room and gives the rest of us zero opportunity to live or even breathe as our true selves. Your truth makes you brave and strong and saps the rest of us of any kind of bravery or strength. Because it's so draining, Lenny. It's so fucking draining to love and accept someone who doesn't love and accept themselves. And that's the only truth I know about you. You mentioned the hair and makeup earlier and it is extraordinary and much nominated. Can you talk to me a little bit more about working with the heads of department for that and the journey you all went on in Felicia's character over the decades, really? Yeah, I had loads of makeup on. It's funny, people keep on saying, oh gosh, they aged you with no makeup. I'm like, no, I definitely <laughs> had makeup on. Um, <laughs> So yeah, setting the record straight just a tad. Um, yeah, obviously Bradley's makeup was amazing. And actually over the years, you know, he started working on that with Kazu in 2019 and he would send me pictures and every time it looked more like, well, a person firstly, but then also exactly like Lena Bernstein. So it was kind of amazing to see them. They'd go and squirrel away for a weekend and then, you know, I'd get a picture and it was, old Lenny or young, it was amazing. Um, but in terms of my makeup and prosthetics, I worked with Sean Grigg, who I worked with on Suffragette and Far From the Madding Crowd and Never Let Me Go and lots of things. And really because Felicia isn't a well-known face, it wasn't really about making her, you know, look like anyone. I, there was no attempt to augment how I looked. It was more just the aging process. So, you know, we messed around with hairlines and to make her younger and darker hair and black and white is helpful. Mm -hmm. um, and then as she gets older, you know, we had Duncan Jarman, who's an amazing prosthetics artist, made these very small pieces to sort of age um, Felicia. And then obviously when she's unwell, um, there was a lot of, I mean, the makeup by the time the end of Felicia's story, it took about four and a half hours. It was just really detailed little veins and age spots and, um, and just amazing. I mean, look, you know, and these contact lenses that that took out the white in around my eyes so that it just looked sort of unwell. Um, it was just the detail of what they did was so amazing. And your performance in those moments really complements that. It is extraordinary and very moving. Thank, Thank you. you for that. Um, I want to talk a bit about the gender dynamic because obviously we're girls on film and that interests us. It's a complex one, isn't it? Because obviously your character is with a very famous man and there's a lot going on in terms of his affairs and secrecy, but there's an incredible bond. I mean, do you feel that gender comes into it? Was it more to do with his fame? What do you think about their relationship in that regard? Yeah, I think it's interesting because I, when Steven Spielberg, who's a producer on the film, talked to Bradley about this film originally and about Lenny and Felicia, he said, you know, Felicia made Lenny her art. Right. And that really kind of resonated because I think... You know, I think she she was an artist and I think she was talented in lots of ways. I mean, she was a, you know, a musician. She went to New York under the guise of training to be a concert pianist. So she was a very talented piano player and actor, but also was a painter and made these incredible paintings. So she had lots of that. But I think what I was so fascinated by was the idea of these two artists living, spending their lives together, one of whom is 
a very talented artist and the other is someone who is lauded as a voice of his generation, <laughs> uh, touched by God. You know, the things that they used to say about Lenny and the way that he was treated was that he was in another realm. And at what point she sort of decided, whether it was conscious or not, that she would just devote herself to furthering his artistic endeavours. And I don't think there was any specific moment where she felt like she should take a back seat, but she definitely did. But she, in one of these interviews with John Gruen, she says, you know, he never asked me to give up anything, I just did it. Yeah. Um, and, and I think that was true, that he was always incredibly supportive of her. She just knew the way the world worked, I think. And really was, did think that her biggest contribution would be to uplift him. What do you think would be different in their relationship now if they were a famous married couple now? I don't think anything necessarily. Yeah. I mean, I don't think yeah. it was a, you know, they really weren't people who were enormously consumed by the era that they lived in. I feel mm. like they were both very forward thinking. I mean, when she essentially proposed marriage to him, she, she wrote in this letter, I know you're a homosexual and may never change but I feel that I can, and there's something, I'm abbreviating, but something along the lines of I feel I can, you know, give myself to this, you know, this partnership, this marriage without sacrificing myself at the altar of LB. So she knew 100% what she was walking into, Amazing. was completely comfortable with it. And, and there were no secrets in that respect. I think the, the real betrayal in the film and in, well, again, we're talking about real people, so you don't want to talk about, you know, yeah. this is our It's all version. speculation. Yeah. Yeah. But, but my, my, understanding or the way that we we always imagined it is that you know the betrayal in the film is not a sexual one it's nothing to do with infidelity that was all kind of part of mm. the arrangement the, the the infidelity was the need to hold somebody else's hand in his most in his moment of real kind of creative distress you know in that moment where he needs somebody to be there for him for his art and for his you know, ego and friends that that he reaches for Tommy. I think that's one of the things I loved about it was how forward thinking they were and also what a journey they went on together and we see that. Bradley is obviously an actor and a director and are there moments when you're acting opposite him, is he also directing at the same time? I mean, does that happen? Oh yeah, <clears throat> almost all the time. <laughs> He's kind of never not. Right. Um, which I, I kind of loved. It, it, it's a lot of making the whole crew feel like actors in a weird way. Like right. they don't, it doesn't, you walk onto, there's no real division between the crew and the cast. So you walk onto a set and nobody shouts action. You're never told kind of where to be. You just sort of, I don't know, land somewhere and then just start. And lots of the, you know, there's lots of the stuff in here is a single take. So it'll start maybe two minutes before you see it and then it'll cut maybe four minutes after it cuts here. But the middle stuff is the bit that, um, but if he's on camera, but his mouth isn't on camera, he's probably talking to someone <laughs> um, <laughs> like, you know, me or, um, but he's doing it in the Lenny voice. So it's not oh, odd, really? fun. but he'll be, so yeah. there's a scene in the doctor's office where Felicia's diagnosed with cancer and there's a moment where you don't see his mouth and he's, he had planned on that being a kind of wide shot. Um, and in the moment he decided he wanted the camera to come in. so he covers his face and then he's talking to the dolly grip but it's sort of you can't obviously hear it now that'd be bad filmmaking but um it's it's you know so that kind of stuff if there's a big group hug or if there's something and if you can't see his face or if he's off camera he can 
talk. That is some serious multitasking. That's very know, impressive. It's, it's unbelievable how <laughs> his brain all works. those nominations. Yeah. That's yeah. pretty amazing. <laughs> when you first came on Girls on Film, I'm just going to go back to that. That was 2018 and we spoke about Time's Up. And you actually said that things had irrevocably changed that past year, so 2017, 2018. Since then, I must say you've been in some films that we've absolutely adored. Um, Promising Young Woman, she said. I'd love to ask you from a Girls on Film perspective before we cut to the audience about Maestro, what do you think has changed since then, when we spoke in 2018? <laughs> in general, I think we've fixed it all. Oh, so, um, I can give up now then. Well done, everyone. Um, no, I mean, I think the things that we talked about then that are the things that are kind of, you know, literally written down and laminated within studio systems and mm -hmm. theatres, that's great, that's all stayed in place. I think for me, like this year, what I, you know, this is the first, I was saying this in the car, you know, I'm doing a film that's not overtly about sexual assault, which is kind of a relief, you know, like it's a lot to talk about in the press because you feel like, you know, often you are asked for an opinion that speaks for women and that's absurd, you know, we're just actors and so it's, um, but what I've really noticed in the films that have come out this year is that actually it's a lot more about just a female experience, you know, Emma Stone and Poor Things and, um, and Felicia, she's, you know, a lead character in this film about the great man, but it's not really about the great man. It's about the two of them and their partnership and, and for there to be films that are not overtly or in any way actually message films or lesson or any, we're not trying to teach people this year. We're just showing the female experience. I think that's, um, and authentically and as you know there's there's space to be kind of grotesque and there's space to be mean and there's space to be unpleasant and like people are um, as opposed to having to be didactic in any way I think that's progress there's so many brilliant female characters this year that aren't trying to sort of teach anyone anything beautifully said and as reflected in our girls on film award nominations oh, great. <laughs> anyway let's move to the audience when you first read this script, could you tell that you were reading something that was going to be so celebrated and so, for lack of a better word, nominated? Could you feel it when you were reading that this was something quite big and substantial? I felt like it was a big swing, really, um, for everyone, most particularly maybe for Bradley, because, it, you know, the kind of balls he had to do. I mean, it's <laughs> unbelievable. Like, he was dressing up every day as Leonard Bernstein and talking to people every day, all day as Leonard Bernstein, right. including the London Symphony Orchestra. I mean, it was so audacious what he was doing. <laughs> and as an English kind of, you know, non didn't get into drama school actor, I like stood there a lot being like, oh my God, what's he, this is not like, this is, but he was so brave. And then everyone else was like, oh, okay, we'll be brave too. And it turned into this sort of amazing thing where no one was scared of making a fool of themselves because it was so, but he was, he was of everyone taking the biggest swing. And I think he did the most phenomenal job. And I just spent a lot of time feeling very proud of him, but I didn't, I don't think anyone could think that this would be a slam dunk because it's, you know, he was making big sweeping brushstrokes with everything, not just with the script but, and with his performance and with the whole thing, but also with the way he directed and the way he edited. I mean, it's just so much of it is not what one might imagine. And so, but I trusted him. I really felt like everything that he'd ever shown as an actor and also as a director, I'd, I'd really believed and I was moved by and I imagined he would do the same with this, but there was no 
I, I knew that I would like it, but I wasn't entirely sure what anyone else would think. <laughs> the younger scenes are in black and white, and I was wondering whether or not if that did have an impact on your experience filming it, and if so, what that was. I, I, uh, it did in a way. It was the first stuff we shot was all the black and white stuff. So we did that for the first four or five days of filming. So in that sense, I think it was, you know, it was starting at the beginning, which is not always the case. Um, I find the black and white stuff so interesting because this, in terms of us performance-wise, probably not a huge amount, but for makeup and costume and production design, it's such a different palette. You know, nothing looks the way that it does. So they have to adjust everything. So I had sort of slightly odd coloured lipstick on and which doesn't read very nicely in real life, but on black and white looks like, so they had to test everything like that for the black and white film. Um, Cause there was no, it was always shot on film. So there was no version of it being changed afterwards. So the cost, my costume was sort of weird color. I didn't feel great in real life cause I didn't like the color of my costume, <laughs> but um, that was, and my shoes were weird, but, but I knew that it would look nice on black and white. Um, and it was, you know, that part of it felt like a lovely little kind of um, bubble. We went up to Tanglewood. We were there on our own. It was quite, it felt quite small. It was then the week after we went to Central Park and shot that scene in Central Park after she's been diagnosed with cancer and there were suddenly millions of people around and um, that felt. So for, to have that little bubble just for the love story at the beginning was actually really special. I'm thinking of a number. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, I don't know. Nine. No. Five. No, you have to think. <laughs> I'm trying to. I'm trying to. It's two, darling. Two. It's two. Like us. Hmm? Like us, a pair. Hmm. Two little ducks in a pond. <sighs> Throw your weight on me, darling. That's it. Put all your weight on it. Yes, that's it. Lean your head back. That's it. You've already spoken a little bit in your conversation with Anna about sacrifice. I wondered how much you felt that her self-sacrifice was deliberate and how much you felt that she was kind of led that way and, and at which moments, if that makes sense. It's interesting. I went to Santiago, Chile to meet her wider family and their idea of what her life was was different to how her children viewed her life, to how she talked about her life, to the different ambitions that she had varied from person to person. So some family members in Chile were more convinced that actually the trajectory that she wanted to be on was to live at the Dakota and that the artistic endeavor was not as much of a sort of guiding light for her. But then speaking to her children or speaking to people that knew her and looking at her work and the way that she re-entered work because she did when they split up but start acting again but then i read all of her reviews and i read reviews that made me wince because not because they were bad but because they were like eh. you know they weren't they were kind of i'd rather be awful than like eh. and the the couple of these reviews were were that and i thought how must that feel to be married to someone who is, you know, Lena Bernstein and you get a review in the New York Times that says that you're fine, you know, and that that was so. So again, like the the sacrifice element, I think she sorely wanted a large family. She loved having children and she talked a lot in this interview with John Gruen about how 
you know, she did, she recognises that there has been an element of sacrifice, whether she would like to call it that or not. But she asks him, would, would the children be as lovely as they are? If I had gone and done everything that I wanted to or could have done, would they be the way that they are? And um, so I think it was a constant kind of, but she was basically just in dialogue with herself about it because she refused to kind of admit to anybody else in her life that it was something that, that pained her. Um, so yeah, I don't know. I, what I loved about the, the part is that I got to the last week of shooting and was still finding stuff that kind of informed that question, like the ongoing question of what did she, what did she give up? What might her life have been like if she'd never met him? What might her life have been like if she'd become a concert pianist? And what, you know, what would have happened if she could have, you know, when they first met, she was more famous than he was. You know, what if they had not both gone to that party? Um, what if her husband, you know, not her husband, but she was with another man for about four years. So she met Lenny. They, they decided they couldn't make it work. Um, Dick Hart, who's in the film, who's the sailor that, that she meets backstage at the theatre, they were together for four years. He died. She sort of nursed him. Um, and then she went back to Lenny. So there's, there's so many ways in which her life could have taken different turns. But um, I do think that there was something predestined about them. If you believe in that at all, these two, so many things could have pulled them apart and they stayed together. Um, so I, yeah, the, the, the romantic in me likes to think that it was kind of ever thus and it could not have gone and it wasn't really in the grand scheme of things for her a sacrifice. I love how immersed you are in both their lives. You seem to really understand them. Well, try, try to, but it's so, yeah. that's the coolest thing is that yeah. you can, you know, that again, there is just so much about a life that you can kind of dive yeah. into. I thought the theme of art and creativity and the depression, but the kind of the, the highs of it as well was so, touched a nerve really. Um, but how do you feel about that with where we are and the kind of the idea that creativity is, it's not being given its right support and space to flourish. And I feel that feels kind of relevant for where we are today as well. So I wondered if you have any thoughts on that. It's the, I mean, I've got three children now. One of them's a baby, um, but the other two, it's the, it f for, to have the opportunity which they have to be creative. I think it's the antidote to everything else that's going on in the world. My eight year old reads The Week Junior, um, uh, which I'm very proud of because and, and I read The Week Junior too. Um, but I do think that the song and dance and art and um, play that creativity affords her is, is not just something that's a nice bonus, it's fundamental to childhood and to developing good rounded humans. So any um, move to limit that for people um, and for children it is, is a big, big red flag for how we operate, I think, as a functioning um, good society. So um, I think now more than ever, we need to get behind it um, because it's, it's sort of the... Yeah, it's the it's it's a crucial part of us. It's not a nice extra. It's something that we we need. I think well, this film like, feels like such a wonderful testament to creativity in all your work on screen. Is there anything else you want to leave the audience with with regards to the wonderful maestro? Oh my goodness, no. I mean, <laughs> I'm just um, no. I'm just so I I think it's it's so wonderful to be celebrating so many films this year that have this much to talk about with girls. You know, yes. like it's just not a normal, it was not, I started acting 20 years ago and there was probably 
one film a year for a while where there was someone who had more than a few lines strung together. So this is, um, yeah, I think it's a wonderful thing. I'm really happy to be sitting here with you now, five years after we launched Girls on Film, talking about this and seeing that we have come a long way. So thank you, Kerry Mulligan, so, so much for your thank time you. today. Thank you for joining Girls on Film. Thank you, Kerry. Thank you. listening to Girls on Film. I'm Anna Smith and I was joined by Carrie Mulligan for a special screening for the Girls on Film community at the Soho Hotel in central London. If you'd like to be the first to know about our other upcoming live events and screenings, please subscribe to the Girls on Film newsletter. You can email girlsonfilmsocial at gmail.com. That's girlsonfilmsocial at gmail.com. Maestro is available to watch on Netflix now. Girls on Film is an HLA production brought to you by executive producer Hedda Archbold, assistant producer Charlotte Matheson, audio editor Jack Howard and live sound recordist Cam Griffiths. This episode is in partnership with Netflix. Thanks for listening. We'll be back soon. If you're not careful, you're going to die a lonely old queen.